We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, our host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Dimitri Bures of the China Post. Hi, good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing Chinese state broadcaster CCTV airing confessions by alleged Taiwanese spies. KMT chairman Johnny Jung dismissing a request for the party to debating the remove of the word Zhongguo from its name. Fresh news about Hong Kong murder suspect Chan Tong Kai. Mixed opinions about the possible public health effects of the government's plans to allow the import of US pork and beef products containing ractopamine and also calls for an end to non-recyclable packaging. But we'll begin with numerous reports this week that the White House is moving forward with more sales of sophisticated weapons systems and platforms to Taiwan. On Monday Taiwan time, Reuters reported that leaders of the US Senate Foreign Relations and House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committees had been notified of three planned weapons sales that have been approved by the US State Department. Those informal notifications offer a high-mobility artillery rocket system, long-range air-to-ground missiles and external sensor pods for F-16 fighter jets. And the following day, sources were cited as saying that the Trump administration has told Congress that it is also seeking to sell Taiwan MQ-9 Reaper drones and land-based Harpoon anti-ship missiles. Now, according to reports, the total sales are valued at around $5 billion US dollars, and that figure likely includes costs for training, spare parts and additional fees. Now, no one has actually come out and said when the weapons systems and platforms are going to be a go, as Foreign Minister Joseph Wu has said that the government is still awaiting formal confirmation of the arms sale. The Ministry of National Defence is declining to comment on the matter, while the US State Department is saying only that it does not confirm or comment on proposed defence sales or transfers until they're formally notified to Congress. But despite all those tight lips, China, needless to say, is speaking about the sales, with Foreign Ministry's people in Beijing warning that it will make a legitimate and necessary response to further US arms sales to Taiwan, and they're also repeating previous calls for Washington to immediately halt all weapons sales to the island. So, Brian, of course, nothing new from Beijing, but of course, in one week, a rather large amount of weapons was announced. And that's right. Um, particularly, American elections are coming up, and so some have questioned whether the timing of this arms package is because of elections. Both uh, presidential candidates, the Democratic candidate Joe Biden and the Republican candidate and current incumbent Donald Trump, are trying to take a stronger stance on China, or at least come off cross as though they are doing so. And so one way to do so for the Trump administration to avoid this accusation coming from the Biden's uh, campaign that he is in fact soft on China, despite his rhetoric, is to sell arms to Taiwan. And so this perhaps is, is, is what that is aimed at accomplishing. Um, this does include things, for example, that have been uh, hoped for for some time. For example, drones to allow for better surveillance capacities. That's, that's something that uh, particularly groups such as the RAND Corporation have been arguing that Taiwan needs for a while. The arms package also includes deterrence, uh, for example, that there are missiles which target air to ground. Um, but then in, it also, just to be noted, just generally speaking, in the past few weeks, one has seen just a wrapping up of Chinese military uh, activity. Uh, there has been nearly daily air incursions by Chinese warplanes into Taiwanese airspace. Uh, China declared that it no longer recognizes the median line of the Taiwan Straits. And this has been on for months and months, but has seen an escalation particularly lately. And so this does seem like a timely uh, actually action by the U.S. in that sense. It is may perhaps aimed at reassuring Taiwan as well, in addition to electoral campaigning. Dimitri. Well, the question has been on the table for some time, so we can expect an announcement, as you said, over the next few days, well, ahead of the election and maybe ahead of the upcoming debate between the two U.S. candidates in the election. Uh, 
Well, this is not something new, though. Taiwan has been buying weapons from the United States since the 1950s. My concern is that, well, it's not going to be Black Friday. We're not going to get a discount. The cost of weaponry, of buying weapons to the U.S. are getting getting higher and higher. Well, there are many reasons for that. One of the reasons is also that uh, the United States has many uh, bases and, well, is well established in the region. And the cost of these costs are also going up. We heard recently that uh, the South Korean gov- government might have to increase uh, the fees, what they pay to the U.S. military every year. Uh, might, the fee might actually double. So the question is for Taiwan is how much, can, what can we afford? And more importantly is how can we solve these cross-stress issues? Well, it hasn't been solved for 75 years. So uh, would maybe more weapons, would maybe guarantee more safety uh, on the Taiwan side, but while I'm looking forward, maybe uh, about new ways to solve the cross-trade issues. And so the issue is particularly that how to make the uh, it more costly than than desirable for the Chinese army and mil- navy and air force and so forth if they were actually to military attack Taiwan. And so that is the concern here, and that is particularly why the Taiwan administration is interested in American weapons. Uh, there have been long-standing criticisms of the uh, Taiwanese government for not spending enough on defense. And so actually, I think spending more money on defense is it doesn't really surprise me too much, um, particularly regarding uh, South Korea and Japan and regarding the bases. Uh, this is these are actions of the Trump administration, and so actually that is particularly a question. Uh, the Trump administration has really sought to uh, extract more from American allies, including long-standing allies in the region, again, just South Korea and, and Japan, uh, because of the fact that it views bases as costly and not effective and so forth. Um, this might change, actually, though, if Biden uh, were to come to power, for example. He is more likely to bank on the traditional Cold War-style uh, alliances to try to contain China. And this includes reassuring allies such as South Korea and Japan that America is not really good trying to charge them money for these bases and that it's more committed to maintaining regional security. Um, so it really depends on, I think, which way the presidential election goes regarding overall policy for America and the region. And of course, Dimitri, these weapons systems and platforms aren't going to suddenly materialise in Taipei overnight. So obviously Beijing is going to know when they're going to come and he's going to know why well, they're not going to be here for several years. Do you think, so do you think Beijing could ramp up its military threats to Taiwan before these weapons systems have arrived? Well, we've... I don't know if you remember during the Chen Shui-bian administration, we were told that China is a paper tiger and then China will never invade Taiwan. So we could move forward, move forward means more independence for Taiwan, maybe changing the name of the country in the future. That well, there was that was uh, there was some miscalculation from uh, from the government side. So we we know that China is going to continue to build its strength and build its military. It, it already has one of the most powerful navy in in the world and that's will continue to increase i mean the the the, the, the navy is going to i mean they're going to get stronger and stronger the question is uh if we go into an army and is is there a point in going into an an arm race with the with with china and spending five billion anti dollars on weapons that will be delivered three years later now well what the issue, we have issues right now so why don't we try to address these issues now if we say no to uh, more weapons I don't know if what I, I was just mentioning the base issue. Well, Germany said no. They said they can't pay more, and the U.S. already announced that they will just withdraw uh, from from Germany. So, what what will happen at one point? Do we have a do we, is is no an option uh, for Taiwan? So, well, the only option right now maybe is to pay more. 
So Brian is now an option. It really isn't, I think, because it, again, Taiwan is a long-standing client state of the U.S. In that sense, uh, it does have to take what the U.S. offers it as a way in order to um, signal that continue ties to the U.S. Um, there's still the long-standing issues of strategic ambiguity regarding the U.S. stance on Taiwan, and so arms sales are something that Taiwan has agreed to in order to ensure that there's that connection. And sometimes that does actually mean taking equipment that might not be what Taiwan wants the most. Uh, for example, tanks might not be the most useful thing, but if the U.S. offers it, Taiwan has to take it. Uh, that being said, the U.S. holds a lot of the cards here. It doesn't actually offer what Taiwan wants in terms of uh, defense needs sometimes. I mean, there's no way that Taiwan can outspend China militarily, but current military warfare favors the defender. And so the, 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 the attempt is to make this more costly for China, that it wouldn't actually go forward with, with an invasion attempt. Um, in that sense, the U.S. has sometimes withheld technologies that would be used for Taiwan. And I think that that's, that's uh, that goes back to these longstanding uh, lack of commitment to Taiwan. Um, but then regarding these larger issues, then, I think that just uh, particularly China is going to just become more and more aggressive without actually action to uh, show China that Taiwan is not just going to back down in the face of aggression. I think that China will just become increasingly emboldened. And moving on, and Taiwanese nationals have been parading in front of the cameras on Chinese state broadcaster CCTV this week to publicly confess for spying for Taiwan. Now, the confessions have been part of a three-part series titled Taiwanese Spies, which is broadcast Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. On Sunday's edition, Li Mingju, a local government consultant from Pingdong, who disappeared on August the 20th of 2019 after entering China through Shenzhen, was seen admitting to being a spy. On Monday, Chang Yu Chin, who China is claiming was detained in April of 2019, confessed. And on Tuesday, Southern Taiwan Union of Cross-Strait Relations Association Chairman Tsai Jin Shu and retired National Taiwan University Professor Xi Jinping both made similar confessions. Now, both Tsai and Shi went missing after arriving in China in 2018. And while the government here has confirmed the identities of Li, Tsai and Shi, questions remain over Chang, who China claims is a Taiwanese scholar based in the Czech Republic public and a former aide to former ruling DPP chairman Zhuo Rong Tai. Now, the former DPP chairman is denying that claim and also says that he never met Chung. While the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has said that Chung lived in the Czech Republic from 2005 through 2018, but he was engaged there in actions promoting China-Czech relations. Premier Su Jingchang says China's repeated arrests of Taiwanese nationals on the groundless accusations against them are unbecoming of a world power, and Taiwan is not engaged in some or infiltration activities against Beijing. While the Mainland Affairs Council is condemning Beijing for repeatedly making unsubstantiated accusations against the Taiwanese citizens, describing those actions as malignant political manipulation. So, Brian, alleged spies paraded on television in China, questions over whether one of them was a spy or not, and, of course, others were simply there, according to the government, just working. Uh, that's right. And so I think now one is seeing this lurid uh, style of just parading Taiwanese on TV in China and saying that they have done all these terrible things and so forth. And this is a long-standing pattern with China, but now these people who were arrested two years ago, effectively, are now appearing on television and confessing to spying and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it's actually very interesting then that China is trying to create this narrative that Taiwan is engaged in spying against China, uh, that they are fomenting, for example, uh, unrest in Hong Kong and that sort of thing. And this is particularly uh, drawing on the people that it has currently captured. And and it's a kind of continuous narrative. I mean, the claim is that this is an operation called Thunderbolt 2020, and that there was a previous operation also aimed at capturing Taiwanese spies called Thunderbolt 2018. 
Um, but also, what is quite quite actually, uh, uh, I think, should lead us to reflect is that just the, the the people that are being targeted. One can learn about which demographics China is targeting through these uh, these people that are making these conventions. Uh, businessmen, for example, and academics. Uh, the choice of target with Cheng is quite interesting because of the fact that he was working in the Czech Republic. This is probably aimed at sending a signal to the Czech Republic regarding the fact that it is building stronger ties with Taiwan, and that. Uh, the Czech Republic has signaled that it's taking a stronger t- stance against China through these stronger ties with Taiwan. Um, but Tsai is also a very interesting case, because Tsai is actually a pro-unification advocate. The organizations that he was head of were actually intended to pro-unification, uh, but he is still being claimed to be a Taiwanese spy. And so that, I think, goes to show that you can be pro-unification, but China will still potentially target you, will still potentially view you as a threat. And so I think that kind of red line is actually very hard to figure out. Uh, someone like Morrison Lee, Li Mengzhu, uh, is someone that was more pro-democracy. He was someone that crossed into China after participating in protests in Hong Kong, uh, took pictures of military ve- vehicles and personnel in Shenzhen, and was then arrested. And so his political views are a little more clear that he is pro-democracy. And then, because he was sharing these images on social media, that was the justification for his arrest. But with someone like Tsai, that is actually kind of harder to pin down. But I think that it's, I think just being Taiwanese now, you can be targeted in China. And that's the kind of, that's the, the threatening thing. And obviously, Dimitri, like Brian said, business people can be picked up in China now if they're from Taiwan. But do you think this is going to harm trade and business cross strait ties that way? Well, uh, I know that some businesses, some business people were telling me that, well, they'd learn a lesson. And then when they are in China, they know that they shouldn't take pictures around and uh, filming videos. Well, uh, Li Mingchu's case is indeed very interesting. The guy is like, he's an electronics trader. He's accused of endangering national security for recording videos and taking photos of the Chinese military. So, well, yes, this is hurting uh, uh, cross-straits relations. Well, the Chinese judicial system and the video confession system, it's the same for not only for the Taiwanese, but also for the Chinese people. Everybody goes through the TV to confess in China. Well, that's a major issue. But when it comes to Taiwan, I don't think that such kind of a, well, it, 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 it tells us also that the, 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 there, there is a lack of communication channel right now between Taiwan and China. And then we can't solve this issue. So we, well, Lee was arrested and then he was put in front of the TV and was told to say something. Now, well, it's a, it's a major concern and um, businesses and business people who often travel to China, including students now, really have to take this uh, threat very seriously. And do you think that fewer business people and students can actually choose to go to China, Brian? I think that's right. I think people will be afraid because, again, just it's very unclear what the red line is now. It's, it's very arbitrary. It's not just taking pictures. It is just basically anything. I mean, you can be head of an organization that is devoted to promoting uh, closer ties between Taiwan and China, and you will still be targeted. Um, for example, I think also to certain industries regarding what information you access, uh, particularly finance. There have been, for years now, people working in the finance industry have been quite afraid because just even revealing accurate statistics and so forth on finances, on the state of some Chinese companies, could potentially lead you to come under scrutiny. And it's very easy to frame up someone doing business that's always traveling back and forth as being a spy. And so I think that that's particularly going to affect business. I think students particularly also, um, just that fact that China realizes that many Taiwanese young people do not identify with China, that they are in favor of uh, some some autonomy or greater autonomy or outright independence. And so I think that that is particularly dangerous for young people. I think that just particularly, for example, we see actions in Hong Kong, young people are targeted for just being young people with the assumption that all young people have these political views which are in favor of greater autonomy for Hong Kong. And so just police will harass young people on the streets and that kind of thing. Well, I think also Taiwanese young people in China, uh, because of the fact the Chinese government is aware of what the views of political uh, uh, political views of Chinese, Taiwanese young people are, could potentially be targeted. And I think that 
find us quite dangerous. And Dimitri, I mean, do you see that if business people are being targeted, maybe someone like Terry Guo could get on the telephone and ring someone that knows the leadership in Beijing up and go, hang on a minute, can you know, you better leave these businessmen alone because, you know, we're doing that, we're there to business and that's it. Well, that's what I, I, I just said about the lack of communication channels across the Taiwan Strait. They were communication channels. There are some people who travel often across the Taiwan Strait who have connections within with uh, the, 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 the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese leadership. But the, maybe the problem now is some of these people in Taiwan do not have the right connections with the Taiwan government. So there is a com there are communication issues between the opposition and the ruling party. And in usually in most countries, when uh, when it comes to uh, foreign policies, you would have maybe the opposition and the ruling party kind of agreeing on the direction we should be going. But when it comes to China, the opposition and the ruling party can't agree on anything. And of course, Brian, the KMT did come out and say you should probably stop this, but that's where they stopped their comment. Uh, that's right. But yeah, I think it just goes to show, actually, that the relation between Taiwan and China is not that of a normal relation between two countries. If normally when this kind of thing happens, when someone commits a crime in another country or is accused of doing so, the two governments then will actually conduct meetings or, or actually communicate with each other in order to discuss this issue. But that's not what China does. It has no intention of communication, communicating with Taiwan. It's very bizarre then to blame it on both sides or even claim that Taiwan is at fault. Uh, the 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 way this kind of kidnapping has been handled historically is to conduct it uh, under the table using intermediaries that are people that travel back and forth between Taiwan and China who have ties with the Chinese Communist Party and the KMT usually, uh, conducting this on a party-to-party -party level. But this is A, not democratic because it's conducted between two political parties that do not are not actually the governments of their respective countries. And it is just actually, it should be actually conducted through transparent uh, due process that is out there in public and uh, is actually, in that sense, just something that is, is people know what this process is about and how what happens to these people eventually, but that's not what happens here. Uh, China prefers to conduct these negotiations on the table because it just has no intention of engaging in a legitimate legal process. And of course, Dimitri, the dates where these Taiwanese nationals were disappeared, so to speak, I mean, 2019 and 2018, that's all we've heard of at the moment. Do you see more cases coming to light maybe later this year? But of course, the coronavirus has stopped many people from well, going to China. The, so. the, the, the pandemic has stopped people from traveling. Uh, well, I'm not here to defend the judicial system in China, but we shouldn't look at our own judicial system and saying that our system is perfect uh, is, is perfect too. Uh, each country has its own issues. Uh, Taiwan had an issue, for example, with the peep talk. When you arrest someone, it goes the person. We have the reporters waiting at the entrance of the of the the, the police station and taking video footage and pictures of the alleged uh, criminals. There are also issues in Japan, for example. Uh, I, we we all know the story of this French businessman who flew in a case uh, because he he thought at one point he, he, he would never get a fair trial there are issues also in the in the united states the peep talk when another issue with uh, the former french head of the uh, the imf who was uh, also went through a peep talk so there are major major issues with the judicial system in in, in china and it's also related to and there it's all, always connected to politics but we should also look into our own judicial system and see that many things that should be improved as well 
And moving away from China, or only slightly to domestic news, though, about sort of China, and the KMT's Legislative Caucus Whip Lin Wei Zhou poked a hornet's nest this past weekend when he took to Facebook to beg the question, should the word Zhongguo be removed from the party's full name? How? Anyway, Lin's reasoning behind that question was, according to his Facebook post, because the party's name is easily confused with the People's Republic of China and its use is continuing to lead to accusations that the KMT is pro-Beijing. Now, KMT Chairman Johnny Jung says the party currently has no plans to debate changes to its name and its reform plans are currently focusing on policies that affect people's daily lives. While the KMT, in a statement additional to Jung's comments, added that saying, basically... Jiang had already made his stance on the issue regarding the name change very clear before he was elected party chairman earlier this year, and that statement cited Jiang as saying that the focus of the party's review should be on the manner and content of its discourse instead of its name. So, of course, Brian, Johnny Jiang, we're not going to touch that issue at the moment, not even going to debate it, but, of course, previous KMT chair people have also dismissed ideas to remove the words Zhongguo from its name. That's right, and there's, this has come up in here. There's a story in the past few years. There have been calls on the KMT to take some action to signal that is localized or that is not interested in immediate unification with China. And so one of the proposals has been changing the name of the uh, Chinese Nationalist Party to something like Taiwan Nationalist Party, which would sound a little strange, uh, or something something else to signal that it is actually a political party in Taiwan currently. But I think, uh, particularly under Chang's senatorship, it, as chair, it's not likely to get steam, this idea, uh, particularly because of the fact that Chang has already tried to make changes. For example, when he was elected chair, he promised to reform the party uh, to win back young people to change the party's pro China image, and one of the things he proposed was perhaps jettisoning the 1992 consensus. But then this this uh, led to backlash within the party, and he had to back down from the idea. And since the occupation of the, the uh, legislature by the KMT in protest of Chen Zhu's nomination as controller and head, the KMT has taken an increasingly harder line on the issue. Um, this is, I mean, Chang's efforts to change the image of the party conti- still continue. Uh, for example, the KMT recently passed a, a resolution to seek to reestablish uh, formal diplomatic ties between the ROC and the U.S., and this was passed unanimously by all legislators and legislative Ren in a rare show of bipartisanship. The KMT has tried to use this to attack the DPP in the time since by claiming that the DPP is the one that was not in favor of establishing uh, formal relation, diplomatic relations with the U.S., but also one has seen splits within the party. For example... Former President Ma Ying-tzu, who is actually still playing a crucial role in the party currently, has stated that he believes the party will not identify with re-establishing diplomatic relations with the U.S. And so this has led to, I think, internal conflict in the party between Ma and Chang and their respective supporters. And so then this becomes, uh, when the name change issue comes up again, this becomes another flashpoint in this kind of internal contestation in the KMT regarding the future of the party and regarding which direction it should go in. I think that's kind of what's happening here again. Well, it's an interesting issue. I think it, the, the time is not right right now. Um, he needs to wait for his re-election before he has the, a mandate and strong mandate to bring changes to the opposition party. There are many reasons why you would look for uh, a change of name of your organization, of your company. It could be like uh, the management crisis or a midlife crisis or maybe a revenue crisis. Uh, we're more facing something like more a value crisis and the meaning of the term China has a different meaning. Uh, today uh, than it had maybe 20, 30, or 40 years ago. Many brands also face issues like that. I don't know if you know this brand, this rice brand called Uncle Ben's. 
they recently rebranded their name. I don't know if you know the logo of Uncle Ben's. Uh, a black man, um, you know the the rice brand, and they 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 suddenly and following the uh, Black Lives Matter movement in June, they announced that they would be rebranding their their their, their product, and they have kind of rushed to do that. And uh, in just two and a half months, they came up with a new name. It's called uh, Uncle. Uh, sorry, it's called uh, Ben's Original. Ben's, they t- took away the the uncle and they took away the picture. Ben's original. So I do not hope that the KMT is going to turn itself into KMT originals. But <laughs> we need to look forward and maybe find a proper name to express the views of the opposition. But putting Taiwan everywhere is not an issue either. You don't take a Taiwan car to go to the Taiwan station to go or taking a Taiwan plane. You can't put Taiwan everywhere. I carefully listened to the speech of the president last week and she said the words Republic of China three times. And she said the words Taiwan more than 150 times. That's a bit or I mean, that's a bit too much. Uh, Taiwan is a very important term. It's a key word. It's an SEO word for Google. But not every organization or company now has to call itself Taiwan. What about Taiwan ICRT? What do you think? I don't know. I'm the KMT 2.0, Brian. Well, I mean, for example, the new party is actually the new KMT. And so there's already a party. I mean, people call it the new party, but it actually is the new KMT. So I don't know. Maybe it's new, new, new KMT, KMT or yeah. neo-KMT or something of that sort. The super-duper new KMT. Yeah. Oh, that'd be interesting. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, just for example, uh, if the KMT were to change its party name, it would probably emphasize the Republic of China aspect. I mean, that seems more likely than changing uh, to Taiwan. I mean, that would be just ideologically anathema to the party internally. Uh, there has been backlash in the party, for example, for even referring to ROC Taiwan and not just ROC. The claim that the ROC Taiwan that Tsai pushes for is not the same as the ROC the KMT believes in. And so if there's something, then it would probably be emphasizing the ROC aspect and attempt to differentiate the KMT from the CCP on that respect. But I just think that that, that will not actually appeal to people, because that is not a sufficient change uh, in the eyes of, I think, the public to actually warrant a change, A, and B, to actually distinguish the party's policies from uh, from a pro-China stance. Because just, again, I think what the actual the party needs to make a substantive political change rather than just try to change its name to, to indicate some kind of change. It actually needs to do something in that sense. Um, but I think just, again, I mean, people do refer to Taiwan. You ask most people in the world, what is the Republic of China? People will point to China, the PRC. And so I think then this, I think that then people, when people look at the KMT, the Chinese Nationalist Party, they think, oh, okay, it's a Chinese political party from China. Um, and so that's that's one of those things, actually. I think maybe the KMP doesn't realize that their own branding is actually something that is a little out of date, is not actually in touch with reality. Anyway, we'll move on from branding and take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the saga of Hong Kong murder suspect Chan Tong Kai was back in the news with local law firm Lee and Lee attorneys confirming on Monday that it's been hired to represent Chan's interests in any legal proceedings here in Taiwan. Chan, of course, is wanted in connection with the killing of his girlfriend, Poon Hui Wing, when they travelled to Taipei in February of 2018. Now, the law firm said that it has informed the Sherlin District Prosecutor's Office that it will be representing Chan. And that statement came weeks after Hong Kong media 
media reported that Chan is still seeking to return to Taiwan and face a potential murder trial. Now, the Criminal Investigation Bureau has established a direct communication channel with Hong Kong police authorities regarding the case. But apparently, according to the Mainland Affairs Council, Taiwan and Hong Kong must first clarify jurisdictional-related issues between the two sides before authorities here will accept Chan's return. And the Mainland Affairs Council on Thursday of this week said that the two sides will only begin discussions on whether Chan will be allowed to enter Taiwan and turn himself into authorities here to stand trial after key issues are adequately handled. And if all that wasn't enough, well, the South China Morning Post on Wednesday reported that Anglican pastor Peter Kuhn Ho Ming attempted to apply for a visa for Chan to assist in his return to Taiwan, but the Hong Kong newspaper said that application was rejected by the what is the Taiwan representative office in Hong Kong because they basically said no we can't accept this application for a visa so Brian of course these this saga is continuing and he, he wants to come back here but he can't come back here Beijing introduced a new law in Hong Kong especially for this it all went um, belly up to use a phrase and he's still there wanting to come to trial and people are still here wanting him to come to trial but they can't no one can agree on anything to bring him to trial, which is about the best way to explain it all. Uh, that's right. And so this is the case that kicked off more than a year of protests in Hong Kong, that the Hong Kong government proposed an extradition agreement to fill this legal loophole. But then there were fears that this extradition agreement could allow for people to be sent to China uh, for expressing political freedoms. Um, and then it's kind of bizarre, actually, that why is it that he still wants to come to Taiwan? This came up one year ago, actually, when it was proposed that he come to Taiwan after finishing his term. But then uh, and Taiwan actually did even send people to Hong Kong to pick him up and bring him here and take him to custody before it was announced that, oh, he was not actually be going over. And so now it's a question why this is why is this coming up again? Um, particularly regarding the extradition agreement, that was eventually nixed by the uh, by the Hong Kong government and by China. But then after the passage of a national security law by China, China's uh, National People's Congress earlier this year, this actually accomplished the aims effectively of the extradition agreement and actually just uh, making sedition, quote unquote, uh, criminalized in Hong Kong, something that could lead to up to lifetime in prison. And so this is actually uh, significantly uh, making it more severe to exercise political freedoms in Hong Kong in a way that maybe you don't actually need an extradition agreement. So why does then does China want to send uh, Chan to Taiwan? And so one theory is that this is a way to target the Thai administration, uh, to make the Thai administration look weak by having this back and forth regarding uh, how he is going to come here. Um, but also it's possible that um, last year it was proposed that this could have been a way to set up a legal precedent for future de facto extraditions, having people voluntarily travel to places to surrender themselves uh, and then using this as the pattern in which you establish future extraditions. And that's also quite speculative, but that was one uh, possibility that was raised by legal experts at the time regarding why exactly he seemed so intent on going to Taiwan a year ago. And it's also quite interesting then, particularly who is representing him in Taiwan. I mean, the uh, Li and Li law firm, uh, Chen Changwen, the person that is going to probably represent him, is someone that actually is a close friend of Ma Ying-jiu. He is actually the former head of the uh, Straight Exchange Foundation one of these kind of non-official, actually government, but not actually government bodies by which Taiwan and China conduct relations. And so this is another case of past reliance of depending on someone that's already very tied with cross-strait relations, but also very much in the Pan Blue camp in order to represent Chan in Taiwan. I think that that is quite telling, actually, regarding uh, how this case will be carried out and who will represent or side with, the, with this uh, uh, push in Taiwan. So, Dimitri, do you think the Taiwan representative office in Hong Kong should simply give him a visa and let him go on an aeroplane? Of course they do. They should have done that maybe two years ago. It shows that this case, everything is getting more and more politicized. 
this is a very simple issue, and now I don't see how we can maybe ask. We we, sh we technically we said in the press conference, Hong Kong authorities should agree to ink a judicial assistance accord with Taiwan quickly. Not that Taiwan's Salim uh, District Prosecutor's Office, uh, which is in, with the the, the Prosecutor Office, which is in charge of the Chan case. I mean, this is this, this kind of agreement don't happen overnight, and I don't see the point right now in bringing Mindio or the law lawyers who knows mind you it's not a blue camp issue uh, well this is a mess and we should have solved this issue maybe two years ago let this guy get on the plane set the trial and maybe 20 years later send him back to china but we can't wait any longer and see the situation further deteriorating in hong kong and maybe even cross-trace relation going at the lower pump point in years. So I think it's quite strange to claim that it is politicized an issue, because again, if you look at the timeline of the case, originally the Hong Kong police and the Taiwanese police were cooperating about this case. They were exchanging information. There were Taiwanese police officers sent to um, Hong Kong and, and Hong Kong police officers sent to Taiwan. But then this was suspended from the Hong Kong side. The information sharing stopped, and this case became an issue. It became a major political flashpoint. And then one looks at what happened just one year ago. Taiwan actually sent officers to Hong Kong to take him to custody. They said they would not allow a murderer to just get on a plane freely and just come to Taiwan on his own free will, they would actually take him into custody in Hong Kong and then send him over. And they were there, and they were just at the press conference where he was going out and so forth. And then suddenly, oh, okay, no, he's not actually coming to Taiwan. And so this was this is another case in which the Hong Kong government has decided, okay, well, there's we don't actually want to go through with this. But yeah, the mechanisms were there from the Taiwan side to take him into custody. It was actually the Hong Kong side in China that politicized this because of the fact that they, they really do want to make this into a frame-up that negatively impacts Taiwan. So it's the time is the turn of the Taiwan side to politicize it now. So it's gonna go endlessly, and the, he's now he's, the guy is never get on trial for murder. I mean, he's already served 29 months in jail on money laundering. The Hong Kong government literally has him in Hong Kong. They could actually take action right there if they did want to. And that's actually what has been argued. Um, I mean, again, just that is he is actually there, and just, it's the Hong Kong government that's not interested in actually pursuing further charges right now. Anyway, moving on from that, we'll talk about ractopamine. Oh, woolly bully ractopamine yet again. Now, the Legislative Social Welfare and Environmental Hygiene Committee this week hosted its first public hearing to discuss the issue, during which experts, well, they gave presentations that offered very mixed opinions on the possible public health effects of the policy. The contrasting opinions cited a 2015 study that found that the well, ractopamine basically wasn't as toxic as some people claimed because apparently it didn't quite last long in the human body. While others said, hey, it's very bad because apparently it attacks the human urinary tract. So now we have a committee meeting and it's all ended where we thought it was going to end, Brian, because no one can actually agree whether it's good for you or bad for you. That's right. Being ractopamine. And so the majority of the world's countries do not allow for the use of ractopamine. The US is an exception, but American, I think, uh, health standards are somewhat lacking in, in many respects. And so that's become one of the debated issues then regarding Taiwan. Uh, I mean, the Taiwan Station has its eye on a bilateral trade agreement with the US, and it's always been a precondition for something like that, that you have to remove these barriers on pork and beef. Um, and so now that we have this debate about ractopamine, there have been all this, this uh, debate about, for example, 
the military, for example, not allowing for ractopamine-treated meat to be eaten, uh, calls for children to be banned from eating a ractopamine-treated meat. And this will probably just go back and forth because there are so many different narratives out there regarding the safety of this. Um, it is untested in, in many of the world's countries. Uh, because of that, that's why many countries do not allow for its use. But America is very intent on demonstrating that this is safe because it is used in American pork and beef across the board. And the other uh, argument then, which one sees from the Times Nation, is that even if it comes to Taiwan, this will not affect domestic industries. You're afraid to choose not to eat it. Um, and so that will be the other argument that gets brought out regarding this. But I would also just don't expect to see this resolved anytime soon. The food safety issues also provoked, uh, always provoke a lot of uh, anger and passions and, and that kind of thing, which one sees from everything from uh, the idea of food imports from Fukushima to the ractopamine issue, which has gone on for years and years and years. And so I don't expect this to be settled overnight now, now that Tsai has decided to remove these barriers on ractopamine meat entering Taiwan either. But of course... And Dimitri, if it does go to the vote in the legislative chamber, the DPP, of course, has a majority and they're likely to put their hands up and go, yay, regardless of what anyone else thinks. Well, they have a solid legislative majority, so the, the directives are almost certain to be passed. What was interesting, I mean, what is interesting in this debate in how positions shift back and forth, on and off, um, the opposition changed its mind, the ruling party changed its mind again. So, well, that might maybe this issue will last and there will be more uh, uh, confrontation in the future but the only way to settle this issue maybe will be for voters to vote on this issue in the future so well the opposition hopes that they can use this issue to raise their exposure and then raise new issues in Taiwan society maybe uh, win back new voters and young voters but well, we will see until the next election. It's really hard to say. I mean, Brian, do you think the uh, political party could win back voters or the general public will just go, well, just let it in and we'll eat it if we want to eat it and we won't eat it if we don't want to eat it? It's a good question, actually. I wonder about that. Um, yeah, absolutely right. Just when the Ma administration was in power, it was actually the Ma administration that sought to introduce ractopamine meat into Taiwan and the DPP that protested against it. But then once the DPP is in power, these, the, the shoe is on the other foot. Now the KMT is opposing it and the DPP is supporting it. Um, but I think this is actually, it is one of the issues that the KMT will be able to leverage on more because of the fact that it's been such a historical issue that it does provoke such passions. And the KMT has proposed taking it to the referendum. Uh, the DPP holds the majority, but true, you, you might try to get around with a referendum. Uh, the KMT has realized that's a very successful way in order to anger, to drive the public uh, to mobilize around an issue that they are angry about, and this can benefit electorally the uh, KMT. Um, that being said, I think uh, it's also a question, too, as to whether the DPP's inter uh, will coherency on the issue will hold. Uh, the DPP itself, because, again, it has been it's such a controversial issue, in the face of growing public uh, opposition to ractopamine-treated meat, I can actually see fractures within the DPP caucus. Not everyone might actually hold to the party line. Some people might vote differently. I think that might happen. And before we go this week, and staying with food safety issues, or, or basically issues related to food that are related to safety, Greenpeace Taiwan this week released the results of its 2020 report in, on bad environmental practices, in which it reiterated calls for stores to provide unpackaged shopping and warned that non-recyclable packaging remains the norm here in Taiwan. And the report says that nine of the island's major retailers and convenience store chains are still failing to provide such items for their customers. So, Dimitri, when you go to the super market do you expect to see non-recyclable packaging or would you like to see recyclable packaging or no packaging 
Well, we hope we all hope to see more recycled packaging. Taiwan is really good at recycling, and uh, when we see when we go and, and bring the trash downstairs, you know, four times a week, we see a lot of people. They'd like to participate. They like to do this, but the the issue is not. I don't see how we could do with no packaging because in the uh, the pandemic, because of food safety issues, we need proper package. Now, plastic is not that good for the environment, but plastic is safe uh, for uh, protecting food from viruses. So uh, th th this is a dilemma. Yes, we need a more holistic plan to wear uh, it plastic off the bag, the, the, the packages, and we maybe also find ways to increase recycling more. But we won't be get a, we won't be able to get away uh, without plastic. Yeah, that's right. I also cannot see uh, th there being a substantial shift in the way we use plastic, particularly in the, the time of the pandemic. Uh, but I think it is correct just to push for reduced use of plastic. And I think uh, one of the things that needs to be paid more attention to in Taiwan is uh, when people call for changes in packaging, for example, limiting straws, does that actually get rid of the plastic? For example, just the convenience stores in response to that change the design of coffee cups uh, after there's this push to remove straws. But then in many cases, this actually increased the amount of packaging that was being uh, plastic that was being used in packaging overall. And so I think that's one of the, the uh, attention, there should be more attention paid to that. There should be more scrutiny paid to these kind of finer details rather than this general push for just reducing plastic that actually just uh, allows for many companies just to evade the issue or even just increase the amount of plastic they use in packaging. And I think that's that's one of the things that needs to be paid more attention to. Um, Greenpeace has leveraged on the issue in past years, particularly around Singles Day, uh, pushing for uh, more awareness of this issue regarding ties of high consumption. I think that that's something that's very positive. I think that particularly when uh, in holidays in which people spend a lot and uh, are eating out and so forth, there needs to be more attention paid to this issue. But I think just in, maybe there should be more monitoring of companies. And of course, Dimitri, Greenpeace Taiwan also said that consumer purchasing habits should change. Well, yeah, but they change slowly. They can change because when it comes to coffee, for example, we used to, when you buy coffee at a 7-Eleven, now you can bring your own cup. So... This something that maybe we can learn if we get a small discount on the, you know, when if we don't use a plastic cup, I think that would even increase the number, potentially the number of people who bring their own cup. But is it going to work with if you buy like uh, snacks and crackers or uh, instant noodles, you can't bring your container and that will cause major issues and you, you know when you the, the 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 business model of a convenience store is to be convenient and fast so if 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 it's fast as fast as uh before yes i i, I guess most people will will agree to bring their own container to buy to buy whatever product at 7-eleven or any any major store of course brian some supermarkets here do have the open fridge freezer areas especially of course we had the holiday recently where everyone barbecues and oh. my local supermarket had changed a couple of its fridge areas and just had fresh meat in them yeah that'd well, be it wasn't packaged but you still had to put it in a plastic bag yeah yeah it's one of the paradoxes then i mean just also traditional markets then meat is out in the open um, but I think that's right. I think also just there maybe should be more discussion of ways in which the government can encourage people to change their habits uh, in order to use less plastic. For example, again, just it was very successful introducing that you have to pay a fee to get a plastic bag. And that's one way to, you can subtly change habits over time and create new habits and that kind of thing. Again, discounts for bringing in your own cup, uh, your own plastic uh, cup or, or whatever, in order to get coffee. That's actually a very positive thing. And I think that promoting those kind of policies might actually be more realistic than just pushing for just getting rid of uh, use of packaging overall, perhaps. Have 
having kind of an intermediate uh, aim uh, rather than trying to get to your long-term goal right away. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Dimitri Buyas. Good, good night. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.